can have a... Uh, I'm going to do that to you. Go ahead and stand back up. <laughs> uh, we will have pastor-led prayer at the end of the sermon this morning, not at the beginning of it. Um, so if you're able uh, to stand or still standing, uh, if you'll join me as we read from Psalm, or Mark chapter uh, 14 for our scripture reading this morning. We'll read from Mark chapter 14, verses 26 down through 42. It'll be up on the screen for you to follow. You should be able to see the whole thing over here. It says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went out of that place, out to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he <clears throat> took Peter with him and James and John and began uh, to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> and you can have a seat, and if you have a Bible, uh, I want to encourage you to open it up to Mark chapter 14 as we dive into and uh, continue walking through the Gospel of Mark. Today's a uh, very cool, very special, very uh, significant day. We don't normally have a small swimming pool in our worship gathering, um, so we get to celebrate baptism th today, which is really cool and really exciting. We'll do that in the end, uh, or towards the end of our worship gathering. Um, if you're new here, welcome to Trailview. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad to have you and your, your family, if you're with your family here today. Um, we'd love nothing more to, than to connect with you. Um, if you're in the area, we would love for you to be a part of our church. We'd love to love and care for you and, and see what the Lord might do in your life through being a part of somewhere like Trailview. And so uh, there's a connect card and a prayer card in your chair. It's the opposite side of the prayer card you probably saw. If you wouldn't mind taking a few moments and filling that out, if there's something that you'd like for us to join you in praying for, uh, we'll walk through some of that stuff towards the end of our gathering, but you can use that card for that or fill up the connect card side of it. And you can do a few things with it. You can drop it in that black box. You can bring it directly to myself or Pastor Brandon, or you can do the QR codes on it to fill that out. Um, what I want to do now um, is, is before we dive into this passage, is to pray and ask the Holy Spirit uh, to use God's Word 
uh, to use his people uh, to form and transform us, to move in our hearts, uh, to stir in us, uh, to see God more clearly, to see ourselves more clearly, and to uh, ask that he would uh, have his way and his will uh, with us. So uh, I'm going to pray, and in that I'm going to give us about 20 or 30 seconds in my prayer for us to just individually ask the Lord to do what He will and what He ha- would have for us this morning as we dive into Mark chapter 14. So let me pray. Father, we uh, come before You uh, in prayer, acknowledging not only Your existence, but our dependence upon You. And that, God, what we need most right now, life may be uh, cruising along uh, like the Autobahn, and it's going great and smooth and quick and fast and enjoyable, or it may feel like the wheels of our life are falling apart, falling off, and we're in check engine light mode, and, and things are just not going well. And whatever the circumstances are, Father, you know them, uh, you see them, you care about them, each and every one of them in the room. Those going through suffering, those going through sorrow, those going through celebration and joy, or somewhere in between, or those who are even feeling pretty uh, numb. That you see us, Father, but what we need most is not uh, you to give us more money, more uh, experiences, more life, more, more anything. What we need is you. We need to hear your voice. We need to feel your presence and comfort. Uh, We need you to do miraculous works of healing in our body and our souls. We need you to bring reconciliation and confession and repentance. What we need most is you. So God, we ask and we humbly come before you, uh, our powerful, uh, mighty creator, uh, who loves us as his children, and ask that you would have your way and do your will in these moments as we open your word. Would you speak powerfully through your word and through your people? Would you wash away any words that I say that aren't helpful? Take a few moments and ask the Lord to speak and move in these next few minutes in you. Ask him to meet whatever needs, whatever's going on in your heart and mind. Father, we thank you that you have spoken and that you continue to speak. Let us not harden our hearts like they did in the days of rebellion, but receive the word that you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to clue you into something also before we dive into this. If you have elementary age kids, so kindergarten and up, uh, towards the end of our gathering this morning, or towards the end of the sermon this morning, uh, we're going to move into a time of pastoral-led prayer. At that moment, uh, shortly in and around that moment, your elementary age kids are going to come in here and going to sit with you. Um, And so that might take some shuffling, some moving, some sliding. Make adjustments as you need to. You guys can adapt. Um, And so uh, they'll come in here for us or with us for the the songs at the end and also to be able to watch, observe, and celebrate um, the baptism that we get to watch and observe and celebrate and participate in uh, today. So, So as we dive into this, Mark chapter 14, we get to the last few hours of Jesus' life. And so as we do this, let me ask you a question. What was one of the most difficult or has been the most difficult circumstance or situation that you faced in your life? What's been the most difficult life circumstance or situation that you faced? Maybe it's 
uh, was something that you dealt with mentally, or, or, or maybe it was a physical illness or sickness, or maybe something that uh, was experienced via someone else. Like uh, for, for me in our family, I think one of the most uh, difficult circumstances in life, and typically the way this works is for me, uh, the, the things that I find most difficult are the things that I realize I am not in any sort of control over. Uh, I, I can't impose my will, I can't take control over, I can't fix things in that moment. I like to fix things, I like to build things, I like to make things work and go, uh, I, I like to do that. And, and the hardest circumstances when I look back in my life are the ones where I'm faced with this reality. You can't do anything about it, Derek. And, and that like powerlessness in the moment is what makes things really hard for me. It may not be that way for you. It may just it may be a different component and aspect of it. For, for, for me, one of the most difficult circumstances of our, or my life, I kind of lump my family in this, or at least my wife, uh, happened 10 years ago. 10 years ago, actually today, not planning to say this in this way, 10 years ago, uh, our twin boys were born. Uh, and they were born uh, three and a half weeks early and had to spend about three weeks in the neonatal ICU. And so I have like a great deal of... Six weeks early, sorry, getting corrected by my wonderful wife. Um, six weeks early, three and a half weeks in the ICU. Um, and, and so I have a great deal of uh, compassion for, uh, and just love for neonatal ICU nurses because they literally save lives every single day. Uh, they literally do save babies' lives every single day by just keeping them alive. And, and treating and caring for them. Uh, but those, those three weeks were ones where like everything you want, you didn't get. You wanted them to come home, they didn't come home. You wanted them to learn to eat, they weren't learning to eat. You wanted them to go to the bathroom, it's a requirement to go home from the hospital, and they just weren't doing it. There, there were, uh, they were having these um, Brady moments where their heart would stop beating, and they'd stop breathing. They're like, come on, man, figure it out. Breathe, breathe, figure it out. You can't do anything about it. You can't make someone else's heart beat. You can't make somebody else's lungs breathe. You can't do anything about it. And it, it put us in a situation where we were just completely helpless, uh, unable to do anything about it. Um, there, I just remember like the hours after they were born, just like laying in the bed with, with my wife and just crying because they didn't go how we had hoped it would go. Circumstance. It didn't go how we had hoped that it would go. Uh, and, and maybe you've been in a situation or a scenario of, uh, of life that maybe it wasn't anything to do with your children, if you have children or your wife or your family, uh, but it was a circumstance in life where it's like, man, this just doesn't feel like it should go this way. Like it feels like, uh, like the equation should be this, this, this equals this, and the, the outcome doesn't seem to fit. And in those moments, we often face that difficult, hard life circumstance kind of situations or scenarios. Where, where maybe uh, just the brokenness and fallenness of the world, maybe it's the sin of somebody else that you just by a passenger get to experience the suffering that comes along with it. Or maybe it's things that you've actually done, mistakes that you have done in your life that you, uh, because of them, have to reap the circumstances and consequences of those. But nonetheless, we, are, we will all face circumstances, or you have faced circumstances and will face more circumstances of life where you will find yourself in suffering and sorrow and circumstances where you wish you weren't there, where you wish you weren't in that moment. And, and putting your faith and trust in Jesus doesn't it, it provide escape from any of those things. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, believing in Jesus doesn't get you out of stuff, but it does get you through stuff. And so... If you are in that moment or, or have been in that moment, here's the question for us today. How do you respond? How do you respond in those moments? Like what goes through your heart? What goes through your mind? 
Are you a, like numb and escape? Like, let me just not think about it. Uh, I went through, I felt that kind of uh, natural reaction actually work for the first time in my entire life. Earlier this week, I had to do something, one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in my life. Um, and in that moment, uh, I found myself able to like escape the tears and the sorrow and the sadness and the emotion by like just looking on my iPhone. Like, I'm not even going to think about this right now. I'm just going to escape the situation digitally. And really, for a moment, I didn't feel anything in that moment. For a moment, I escaped the sorrow and the sadness and the tears. But as soon as I put my phone down, it all just circles, comes right back up. And so in those moments in life, are you an escape artist or an attempted Houdini? Are you uh, a, a, let me just, just do something else, busy myself, buy myself, do stuff, busy? Are you a dive to the depths of that sorrow and suffering and feel the depths of it and just like wallow like a pig in the mess? How, how do you respond in those moments? In those moments either in or uh, at the doorstep of uh, intense circumstances of suffering and sorrow. Well, in this story, we're walking through the Gospel of Mark. We get to this moment where Jesus is on the doorstep of the most suffering a human being has ever faced. The most suffering, pain, sorrow, grief that any human being's ever faced. More than you, more than I, uh, exponentially more, like millions over more exponentially than you or I have faced. And so it serves us in two ways to take a look at this particular story of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, one, because we see the heart of Jesus. Because uh, we see Jesus walk through, uh, or about to step through the doorway of suffering, we see his heart on display. And two, uh, Jesus helps us by modeling for us how to walk in suffering, how to walk through that door, how to live at the doorstep of sorrow and suffering, of what to do, what should you do, how should we respond in those moments? What, how, how does he treat or act towards us when we don't respond well in those moments? So look with me again. We're going to walk through and unpack this story in, in verse 26. So Jesus and his disciples had just finished Passover meal. He institutes the Lord's Supper, takes a few detours on the way, uh, and talks about him as the symbols of the sacrificial lamb and the bread of life. Um, that's why we take communion in the Lord's Supper uh, here at Trellview. And you may have in your life at a different church, because it represents what Jesus came to be, the bread of life for all eternity and the blood of, Christ, or the, blood of the lamb to pay for our sins. And he finishes dinner. They sing the final song. I told you guys a few weeks ago, they sang and prayed a lot at this meal. Maybe you don't do that at Thanksgiving. Maybe you will. Maybe you should do that this year. Sing at Thanksgiving. Um, nonetheless, it wasn't Thanksgiving. And, said, and when they had sung uh, a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus and his disciples, they get up from dinner, they go out of the house, uh, and they go over to the Mount of Olives. So we're talking this hundreds and hundreds of years of old uh, olive tree, orchard, garden kind of thing. Don't think like pecan trees. I know we live in Texas. Think like big shrubs. 
uh, with weird, more similar to like a shrub and a mesquite tree that mix together. Uh, you got the olive grove, the olive garden. And Jesus and his disciples are there, and he, he's teaching and talking to them. And along the way, he says, you will all fall away. For it is written, they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus tells his disciples. He just at dinner said, one of you is going to betray me. And then if you look at the other stories in Matthew and Luke and, and John, uh, Judas leaves either in or at the end of dinner or maybe on the way to the Mount of Olives or maybe when they're praying. At some point, Judas leaves the group and, and goes to do what he was going to do, which is betray Jesus. And so, so now we have the disciples, uh, and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and now he gives some more bad news to the rest of them and says, hey, all of you are going to run away. All of you are going to run away. That, that what Jesus is about to walk in in suffering is going to lead these guys to run and hide, and to leave, to flee from Jesus. But hope is not lost. Jesus is going to rise from the dead, and he will go to Galilee, and they'll regather. But in this moment, what Jesus is telling them is they will be affected by the suffering and sorrow that he is going to take upon himself. And the question for them is, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond when the shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter? When Jesus is crucified, how are you going to react and respond? Jesus tells them, you're going to run away. Peter, in his uh, motivated, best gusto he can, says, no, not me. Truly I tell you, or he says, Jesus, these, these guys, the other ten, yeah, they're, they're weak. They're weak. They're going to run away. Me, no. I don't run from a fight. I actually got a sword here. It'll play a part next week. Uh, like, and when we keep reading through the story, I'm ready to fight. I'm not going anywhere. Jesus says, no, actually, you're going to not only run away, but you're going to audibly deny that you even knew me three times. Today, tonight, this very night. And Peter, again, he rises with the, to the occasion with emotion and excitement and says, if I have to die with you, told you he's ready to fight, if I have to die with you, I'm not going to deny you. And then from that moment in conversation where Jesus unpacks for these guys, they are about to also walk through a moment, season, time of suffering. A kind of moment, season, and time of suffering and sorrow where they're going to want to run and hide. The story continues. And they went, they're at the Mount of Olives, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane most likely, historically, was where they processed the olives. Uh, it was most likely an olive press. So you got the big olive orchard garden. They would pick the olives. They would take them to Gethsemane, to this, uh, this processing place where they would squish all of the oil out of the olives, and they would make olive oil. Like we, probably not like we have. Ours is probably not near as good. Apparently the best olive oil is from that part of the world. Um, but they would make the olive oil. And so they go towards the, the processing place of, of olives and the olive oil. And, and uh, he said to his disciples, you guys sit here while I go pray. See, this is not a shocking moment for Jesus and his disciples. It's not the first time in his ministry he's been like, hey guys, you guys hang out. I'm going to go be by myself and pray. 
This is actually not a, a, a rare moment. It's a repeated moment of Jesus. Like, if you want to, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you live the way of Jesus. By being a disciple, it means you're an apprentice. We don't really do apprenticeships anymore. Nonetheless, what it is, uh, call it residency. When you're, when you're going to medical school or a, a teacher's uh, student teaching, what are you doing there? You're apprenticing. You're a disciple of the master, the expert. The disciples have been following Jesus. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you follow the way of Jesus. And a part of that is doing the things that Jesus does. And so Jesus consistently leaves his disciples not far off. One time he sends them across the whole like giant lake, uh, and he goes off by himself to pray. So it's not a new moment where his disciples have seen him pray. Not even a new moment because they've actually asked him, Hey, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? We don't know how to pray, which is kind of a weird thing to think about in a prayer-saturated culture like this, that they would go, We don't know how to pray. But the shocking thing is that many of you probably would echo that same reality as the disciples. Like, I don't really know how to pray. We'll get there in just a minute. Just a few minutes, we'll get there. He says, Sit there, I'm going to go pray. So he leaves, uh, he leaves, do the math here, uh, eight of them. And he says, Peter, James, and John, you guys come with me. So Peter, James, and John follow Jesus a little bit farther away where Jesus prays. And it describes this moment in Jesus, for Jesus, that he was greatly distressed and troubled. Those are emotional words. Like those, those words communicate an emotional state, that he was greatly distressed. And that he was troubled, that there was internal conflict and, and, and discomfort and, and stress and like all these kinds of things tearing around inside of him. And he says to Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful. I just want to say like, it's a good thing to say things like that if they're true. Like, to, to, to express, my soul is very sorrowful. Uh, we have to learn to process and to speak, and not just for your mental health, for your soul. And so Jesus here displays his sorrow, that his soul, at the depths of who he is, he's going through in this moment, deep, deep sorrow. So much sorrow that it feels like he's dying. It feels like he's dying. And so he tells his disciples, Peter, James, and John, you guys stay right here and, and keep watch. I think it's interesting to think about this idea of them keeping watch. I think Jesus' intent by watch is not like be armored guards. Um. I think there's probably kind of a double meaning moment here. That Jesus' intent for his disciples, who he said are about to go through suffering, and he warns Peter in a little bit to not fall into temptation, to flee, um, that Jesus is saying, watch, as in like be watchful, but also watch me. Watch what I go do. That's what an apprentice and a disciple does, right? If you've ever been a, an apprentice of some sort, maybe it was a trade. Maybe you learned how to be an auto mechanic or, or a doctor of some sort or, or any job where you do on-the-job training, really. Like, maybe you've cooked in a restaurant. My first job was frying chicken. You've got to learn how to fry chicken. How do you do that? You watch the person who knows how to do it 
and they show you how to do it step by step, and then you can do it. And so I think what Jesus actually intends here is not just, hey, you guys be watchful. He doesn't need them to be watchful. He knows when this is all going to happen. I think he actually intends on them keeping their eyes more on Jesus than on everything else. I mean, it's dark. (laughs) It's dark outside. It's nighttime. They can't see anything. I think what Jesus intends here is that they see and they watch him. It says in 35, And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. What does Jesus pray? Well, one, before we dive into what Jesus prays, it's significant for us to see that Jesus, in the moment of the deepest sorrows he's felt, that lead and feel like death, in distress and trouble, that he prayed. Not to skip over the fact that what Jesus came to the garden to do was not run from his enemies, not escape from the circumstances that he feels, not find some olive oil that could be an ointment for his gut that maybe impacts his mental health or whatever, and the sorrow and stress. No. He prayed. He prayed. Not only did he pray, he falls to the ground in prayer. It doesn't say he knelt down and prayed, right? It says he falls. Like there's a, uh, an uncontrollable nature to falling, right? If not, it, we don't call it falling, we call it kneeling, right? When I, when I controlled go down on my knees, I didn't fall. A fall is an involuntary collapse. That he falls to the ground in the sorrow, in the distress, and in the trouble that's feeling like death. He falls to the ground in prayer. And this is what Jesus prays. If it were possible that the hour might pass from him. See, Jesus is on the doorstep. We know the story. The disciples didn't. Jesus did. He's on the doorstep of his crucifixion. He's at the door of the most suffering moment in all of history. And he asks, is there a way out? I think there's something really important going on here. Jesus is revealing both his divinity, that he's 100% God, and he's human, 100% man. Yeah, mathematically it doesn't make sense. It's a miracle. That's what it is. It's God in flesh. He's revealing something you and I feel, which is this like, man, if I could not go through this right now, I'd like to not go through this. And that's a very normal, natural thing for us to pray. When we're going through suffering, when we're going through sorrow, when we feel like we have sorrow so deep it feels like death, or maybe there is death, that it's a very normal thing in that moment to go like, hey, could this not happen? Hey God, could, could we figure out a, a different way? In verse 36, he says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. A a confession and an admission of the sovereign rule and reign of the mighty God. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And a request, remove this cup from me. What does this cup mean? 
When Jesus says, remove this cup from me, what does this mean? Well, if you jump back up, we know that the cup represents blood. And the cup represents a couple different things wrapped up in one in reference to this cup. And so, so we're seeing the heart of Jesus. We're seeing his distress. We're seeing his sorrow. We're seeing him fall to the ground. We're seeing him plead to God for another uh, way out. And he asks him to remove this cup. And this cup refers to two things that are packaged together in one. Uh, one, this cup references the full weight of the wrath. Or the, sorry, we'll get to the wrath in a second. The full weight of all our sin. Uh, the, the, the soul-killing feeling Jesus is about to go through is because He's about to have the full weight of all of your sin and mine poured upon Himself. That He is going to take our sin upon Him. That all the sin you've committed, all the sin I've committed, exponentially over millions and millions and millions of peoples, all upon one human who is God, who lived perfectly sinless. To think about it this way, why does a fire feel warm in the winter? Because you're cold, right? The contrast, you know, nobody's like building campfires to hang out in, I mean, Youth groups do this. It's not very smart. Hey, it's 100 degrees outside. Let's have a bonfire. That's not very smart, actually. It's not. Like, you all just want to sweat. That's all you want to do, that kind of thing. Uh, no, you don't build fires when it's hot. Now, and the contrast moment is what, what, why it's comforting. In the same way, imagine the contrast between someone who, you can't imagine this, so just do your best, uh, who's never sinned, never felt the sting and, and weight, the killing effects of sin, never felt the, the sorrow, uh, never felt the shame and the guilt of the secret sins that you've done, the thoughts that you've had, that you've meditated on, that you wish no one or anyone, especially your loved ones or even yourself, to resurface or think about again. All of those things, all the words that you've said that were hurtful or sinful, all of that laid upon someone who had never felt a drop of shame, a drop of guilt, a drop of sorrow, a drop of grief because of sin. Never felt the division and separation that sin creates, the chasm that it puts between you and God. And so when Jesus refers to this cup that he asked to, to not have, to remove this cup, it's a reference to all our sin laid upon him. I think it's by the grace and mercy of God that we don't feel the full the reality and full weight of our own sin and shame at one time. Like typically by God's grace, we're experiential, momentary people. We, we experience the shame of the sin that we're aware of uh, in the moments that we commit it. Um, Jesus took upon himself and in prayer was preparing himself to take upon the full weight of all of our sin. Why? Because the only way for reconciliation to be made between sinners like you and I and God is for our sin to be taken away. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, for, for your sake, He 
God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. He made him become your sin and my sin. Why? So that by him we might become the righteousness of God. That the only way for us to attain the righteousness of God required for eternal salvation was your sin to be removed. Not diluted. Not diluted by doing good stuff. Do more good than bad. Nobody will taste the bad. Not stirred up and mixed up to where it's, ah, it's all a little bit hazy. No. The removal of sin. is The only way someone could be made righteous could be reconciled to God for all of eternity. And so Jesus asked the Father, if possible, remove this cup from me. The second thing that that cup represents is the full weight of the wrath of God towards sin. Jesus not only took the full weight of our sin upon Himself on the cross, but He also took the full weight of the just wrath of God towards every act of rebellion and sin, rejection, and unbelief. The full weight of the anger and just punishment of God towards sin that you and I deserve, the full weight of it exponentially on all of us uh, poured upon Jesus. So why does Jesus feel sorrowful to the point of death? Because he's about to have all that poured on him. That he's about to have all of that poured upon him. And so in the midst of that sorrow, Jesus cries out in prayer and says, Remove this cup from me. But he doesn't stop there. He says this in the rest of 36. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then Jesus says, this is what I want, Father. But God, do what you want. Not what I want. Do what you want for me. Not what I want. That in this moment where Jesus is in the deepest, darkest place of sorrow, preparing himself to take the full weight of our sin and the full punishment of God's wrath upon himself, what does he do? He says, I don't want to do it, but I will, if it's your will. That Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's will that He take upon all that sin and take upon the full wrath of God and be crucified. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus do that? What motivated Jesus to die? What motivated the Father to send Jesus to die? It's interesting because uh, I have the ability, like you do, to endure some pretty hard stuff if it's going to be worth it 
on the end, right? And so my motivation to endure can be like, it'll be over eventually. Like, you, you can easily go like, ah, oh, well, Jesus, you knew you were going to rise from the dead. You just told the disciples, so like, yeah, suck it up, buttercup. Like, like you're going to come back alive. I mean, sometimes we let that motivate us to suffer in, in sorrow. But what motivated Jesus wasn't the reality that he was going to rise from the dead, that he would ascend to heaven, that he knew all of this would take place. What motivated Jesus to walk in this deepest, darkest place of suffering and take on the full weight of our sin and God's wrath was his love for you. Was his love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. That he gave, and in the giving his son, it means that he gave him as a sacrifice to die in our place. So that by faith in Jesus, you could receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. That you could be reconciled to God. That he would take your sin and its full weight and punishment and give you his righteousness by faith alone. So my encouragement to you this morning, if you're here, is this. Maybe you've been in church for most of your life, all your life, or this is the first time you've walked in one your whole life or in the last decade or years or whatever. Here's the reality. What you need most is to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you haven't. That he came, took the full weight of your sin and the wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to. And he freely gives his righteousness and the reward of eternal life to all who believe the gospel, who believe that Jesus died in your place and rose from the dead so that you would have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. In a little bit, we're going to hear a story of someone who, over the years of their life, the Lord brought to believe the gospel and find forgiveness of sin and eternal life in, by faith in Jesus. Trusting and knowing that they would have not only the, the resurrected spiritual life, but also a promise for a resurrection and eternal life with God. So today for you, I ask the question, do you believe that Jesus died in your place and rose from the dead so that you would be saved? He was willing to do it because he loved you so much. The story doesn't stop there, though, with us seeing the heart of Jesus his motivation in the darkest moments of his life being a love that he had for you that pushed him to willingly submit to the Father's will, which was to die when his desire was a different way. But the story keeps going. In verse 37, uh, we see from 32 down Jesus modeling how we walk in sorrow and suffering, and we see uh, that that's in prayer. And we see the disciples in verse 38. He tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. Oh, sorry, back up, sorry. And when he came and found them, verse 37, sleeping, he said to them, said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and sang the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know how to answer. And he came to them a third time and said to them, Are you sleeping and taking rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go see. My betrayer is at hand. 
The second thing we see here in this passage is Jesus models. And in modeling, he's actually also instructing. That he's modeling for his disciples who are supposed to be watching, and he's instructing, that he's correcting them. Just to clarify, being a disciple of Jesus is submitting to the correction of Jesus throughout all of your life. The disciples right here are submitting to the correction of Jesus right now in this moment in their life. They were supposed to be praying, they're sleeping. They're supposed to be praying, they're sleeping. They're supposed to be praying, they're sleeping. And what does Jesus do? He corrects them. But what's the model we see in Jesus that he's also instructing as a model? You see, in the hardest moments and circumstances that anyone's ever faced in all of history, uh, before Jesus walked through the door of suffering and sorrow on the cross, he does what? He goes to the Father in prayer. Before he enters suffering, he goes to the Father in prayer. Not only does he go to the Father in prayer, in prayer he cries out to the Father with the deepest realities of the emotions he feels and what he desires. That he goes to the Father in prayer, and in prayer he cries out to the Father for what he wants. Hear this. God wants you to tell him what you want. He cares about how you feel. He cares about what you want and desire. And so Jesus displays that we ought to be crying out to the Father for what we want in the reality of what's going on inside of us. And the, second, the third one is this. Jesus submits His will to the Father's will. He submits to the Father's will and trusts that He will work things out for His good in life. So I ask the question, what's most difficult for you? Going to the Father in prayer, uh, honestly crying out to the Father, telling Him your desires, uh, or submitting to Him in prayer, whatever His will is for you. Maybe it's all of them. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's a, yes, this day, that one. But here's the thing I think Jesus speaks powerfully that should and likely, and pastorally, I can just tell you this, is the scenario and situation for most of you. It's this. Jesus' statement to Peter is this. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There is so much packed in that statement that you and I resonate with. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, like, pastorally, I think this is a culture-wide thing, but I only know you as, my, uh, as, as a pastor of Trailview. Pastorally, I and, and Brandon share a lot of concern about where mo- many, I'd say most of, of our church are at, spiritually. I would say that like, there's uh, a great deal, great deal of um, spiritual weakness in our church. And I don't say that condemningly. A part of uh, pastoring, shepherding, and leading is identifying and calling out reality. Not in a hurtful or harmful way, but just to say, like, hey, you know what? We know, you know, you may be in a season right now of spiritual weakness. You may be in a season of spiritual weakness and a, a, a place of spiritual dryness, of struggle. And, and we know uh, along with you, by God's grace, because we talk as a church, we share honestly with what's going on, 
that a lot of a lot of you in our church are in a place or season or time of that spiritual weakness, where where the spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. We're like, we, man, I, yeah, that I should want that, right? I do want that, yeah, but I don't seem to want it as much as my flesh wants the other side of it, the opposite. And oftentimes, circumstances in life do push or cause us to do one of the two things that either Jesus or the disciples do. What does Jesus do in the face of sorrow and suffering? He goes to the Father. What do the disciples do in the face of sorrow and suffering? They're all words, and then they run away. They're all talk and no bite. We're not going to fall away, and then, well, spoiler alert, they all run away. Why? Because the Spirit was willing, yes, God, yes, God, we want to stay here, we want to stay here, we want to be with you forever. I'll die with you, Jesus. But their flesh was weak, so weak they couldn't, just, they couldn't even stay awake. So for us, Trellview, if you are in a place where you would consider yourself uh, toward that statement, my spirit, I'm spiritually willing, I want to be more spiritually healthy and vibrant. But my flesh just seems to get in the way every single time. If that's a way, place that you would describe yourself, here's my encouragement to you. Here's my direction. Here's the shepherd towards the green pasture. Pray. Pray. And that may be the thing. You're like, give me something else to do. <laughs> like, Let me do something else. The Spirit is willing to do something else. <laughs> But, but weak, spiritual weakness is often seen in prayerlessness. Because when we choose to live life without prayer, we're choosing to live life like atheists. As if God doesn't exist. Or care. Or matter. Or have the ability. Or pattern. Or, or want to work in the circumstance. Which is the complete opposite of what the Bible describes about who God is in relationship to us. Some of you, you need some people to come along and help you in your weakness to long and to do the right things, to even do the simple, like, to do the hard thing of praying. And some of us, the reality, if we just call it as it is, are just spiritually lazy. We'd rather do something else. We call it like it is. We're just spiritually lazy. You see, Jesus' exhortation to his disciples is. Hey, just stay awake. Pray. We came here to pray. Watch me pray. We're about to walk through suffering. Seek the Father's face. Jesus went to the Father. They fell asleep. Were all words and then ran away. So uh, the, the big picture thing for us in this to take away and walk away with is this. Disciples of Jesus pray. Disciples of Jesus pray. It's, it, it's a, like, it feels like a Sunday school answer, just a simple, yeah, of course, Derek. But uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, yeah, you know, that's not as actually easy as, it, as it, it's easier to say, just like it was easier for the disciples to say they will not walk away than it is to do. Disciples of Jesus pray. They lived the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus was to go to the Father for comfort and strength in sorrow and suffering. Not to run away in fear or escape, 
but to come honestly before God with all the emotions, with all the desires, and express them to Him in prayer, and then submit to His will. Disciples of Jesus pray. So do you pray? Do you pray honest prayers? Do you bring the whole array of thoughts and emotions and desires before God in your prayers? At the heart of prayer, it's an acknowledgement that you need God and a confession of your trust in His sovereign care. 